Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I am Ulrich Purcell, the founding host of the podcast. I've been crewing up on sets uh, for over 10 years. I've made a dozen films, shorts and, feature, and features, either as a producer or a director. Uh, and I'm just finishing up my first feature film, The Alternate, which I wrote and directed and co-produced as well. I'm Liz Manichelle. I'm a writer, director, producer with two features under my belt and one hanging out there in the ether somewhere, just right around the corner. Um, I'm also a former film critic and current distribution consultant. I used to manage the creative distribution initiative at Sundance. This week, we welcome writer, director, and actor Nitsan Mager onto the show to talk about her web series, Quarantine, I Love You, which she wrote, produced, and directed during the pandemic about living in the pandemic. Uh, Nitsan talks about how she made the show happen and how she was able to partner with Sundance on the release of her third season. We also talked to Nitsan about the making, um, about making the transition from acting to directing and how she garnered the confidence to really think of herself as a director through the making of Quarantine, I Love You. So after the interview, don't go away uh, because we have an unprecedented Get Shorty where we bring back a filmmaker. I wouldn't even say who. I'm just going to say mystery filmmaker uh, to talk about their second Get Shorty. This one um, is called Pizza Deliverance. And then at the end, Ulrich and I talk about, um, you know, the nitty gritty, the, the, the heartbreaks of being filmmakers. But without any more googly goops. Um, here's our talk with Nitsan. Nitsan, thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, we're going to start with questions about quarantine. I love you. So our first question is, can you give us the elevator pitch for the show? The elevator pitch was a series of interconnected conversations that take place on Zoom during the pandemic. <laughs> How many days did you shoot the film? So it began very informally. Uh, at the start of the pandemic, I started writing these short scripts because I couldn't wrap my head around uh, either of the features that I was working on. And then I got in touch with actors that I knew and loved um, in New York who were usually, uh, you know, series regulars on TV shows or in Broadway shows or whatever. And I was like, hey, I wrote this script. Let's get together on Zoom and and do a reading. But then the reading kind of ended up morphing into filming it because it was written for the Zoom format. Um, <clears throat> it was people who were on Zoom talking to each other. Um, so it made total sense to just film it on Zoom. Um, so we filmed each episode in, in a couple hours. Um, they're very short. So I think that there were eight episodes in the first season, seven in the, sec seven in the first season, eight in the second season. And then we did like a capsule of uh, a bunch of short episodes for the third season. So whatever, I don't, I don't know math, but add that all up. <laughs> multiply it by 1.5. Um, that's how many hours we filmed. <laughs> what was the rough budget that you can talk about? Sure. So the first season had zero budget because I didn't even realize that I was making a show. <laughs> so it was kind of um, not official. 
but then it became official in the second season and we got some grants, which was awesome. And the budget went primarily for paying all the actors. So we went through SAG um, and paid them the ultra low budget uh, day rate for each episode. And it would be great if my producer was here and she would be able to pull up the spreadsheet with the numbers. But it was not a lot of money. It was it, it was about $300 an episode. That, that was the budget. I mean, because it was great. There wasn't a set. I mean, this is where I did all of my filming in my basement. Wait, for anything other than cast was $300, right? Just to make sure I want to... Yeah, the cast. I was like, I can't do the the math of that day rate into $300. Yes, it was like about $150 per per actor. Um, And there were, and it was usually two two actors in a scene. Sometimes there were scenes with multiple actors zooming like we are right now, the three of us. So, and then it was a little bit more, but it worked out to about $300 or so per episode. And there weren't really expenditures. There, there were a few others, like we had a stipend for um, our associate producer, um, Nicole Serrato, who was doing SAG paperwork. And, and then we also um, ended up using some of our grant money for help with social media and stuff like that, because I'm super illiterate at, at ads and social media and things like that and I hadn't even been on Instagram (laughs) until the pandemic started and I'm still not on Twitter so it was just Facebook because I'm 90 years old um, in on the inside Um, which makes me a perfect candidate for Facebook but anyway yes so some of our budget went towards like social media just setting up the accounts and helping run them and then how long do you spend working on the series from you know the inception to it being released it was a super, super fast turnaround, actually. So in the first season, which, I, again, I didn't know was a season when I was making it, um, I was just, I, I, I ended up just filming all the episodes and then decided to release them all together. So it was just like a month or two. Um, and then in the second season, we timed it so that it was eight episodes leading up to the election. So it was like... I think five episodes leading up to election, the presidential election, and then three episodes to chronicle the aftermath. And I was actually, it was kind of an SNL sort of thing. So I was writing an episode at the beginning of the week, filming it on Thursday, editing it Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then we would release it at the beginning of the next week. So I, I actually filmed my first episode. This is going to sound terrible. I'm laughing. It's not. It's sad. But I filmed my first episode and then Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. And I was like, oh my God, first of all, I was heartbroken and I was convinced that the world was gonna end the next day. But then I was like, oh my God, I have to write this into the episode that we just filmed and we have to film it again. And so we went back and I wrote that in there because I was like, if this is supposed to be current and speaking and the, the, the tag ended up being speaking to the moment in the medium of our times. So I was like, I, I need to write that in there. So I wrote it and we refilmed it and I edited it really quickly. Um, same thing with like the, the second episode, I didn't have to reshoot it, but I had to do a really quick rewrite because we had just found out that Donald Trump got COVID um, right before <laughs> it. And so I had to write that. And, um, so, so season two was a super fast SNL type turnaround and then for the third season 
Um, we knew that we were going to be doing it in conjunction with the Sundance Film Festival, and it was going to be part of their Beyond Film program. And so, and we wanted it to feel like it's something that covers the beginning of 2021. So I, I started writing it at the end of December, beginning of January, then we filmed within a week, um, all of the different little episodes and, and it was uh, released during the Sundance Film Festival later in January. Sounds like your crew was not massive. How big was it? It was me. <laughs> <laughs> the crew was me, mostly, pretty much it was just me. Um, because, you know, we didn't have a set. We were, I was meeting the actors on Zoom. So the way that it worked is usually we'd have two hours set aside for an episode. Uh, we'd meet, we'd talk about the scene, we'd rehearse in a way that kind of just seamlessly moved into the performance, but it was all filmed. Um, and then I edited the episodes um, and did the, I even created the, the graphics for the title sequence and everything at the beginning. And yeah, so I, I had uh, my producing team that was helping uh, <clears throat> with the, the funding, just getting the funding that I needed. And I also worked with a wonderful casting director who is a friend of mine who helped with the casting for some of the roles. Um, because some of the actors I, I knew already, but um, some of them, like Dennis O'Hare, who ended up taking part in Ali Wentworth, um, they were through agents and I got to them through my casting director friend. Um, so there were definitely people behind the scenes helping put it together, but in terms of like traditional film crew, writer, director, editor, cinematographer, the actors, I should have given them DP credits, all of them, because they were positioning their cameras and their lighting and, um, and they were also their own prop masters and, and costume designers. So we were, we were all multi-hyphenates. <laughs> and then the final question, uh, compared to all of the other projects you've made, how difficult was this one? It was very difficult. Um, I don't know if it's more difficult. It, it was, yeah, especially like when, when it became official. At first when I was just playing around, <laughs> not knowing what I was really working towards, um, it was just kind of a fun distraction. But once it became official and there was funding and managers and uh, agents and timelines and deadlines and everything involved, um, and, and I kind of set it up as this making an episode and releasing an episode per week, um, and then it was very stressful. <laughs> um, and, and also, uh, you know, I think film is a naturally very collaborative uh, medium. And, and this was wonderfully collaborative in some ways in that I got to work with these beautiful, wonderful, talented actors. Um, but most of the behind the scenes, getting everything together and, and editing and all of that um, was, was alone, which was very, a very foreign film experience for me. So yeah, it was hard. But on the other hand, it was also kind of much easier because it was so accessible. Like I, I could work with these actors that normally would be much more complicated for me to work with because suddenly their schedules were much more free. I wasn't asking very much of their time because they didn't have to report to set and it wasn't a long shooting day. Um, so I feel like in some ways as a filmmaker, I had access to much more than I usually would um, so easily. Um, and then some aspects of it were harder. I want to go back to the first two seasons when you were kind of figuring out what it was, because the third season premiered at Sundance and you kind of can anticipate a, a certain level of 
amplification, right? But for the first two seasons, um, how were you convincing actors to participate in this? What was the angle? Was it, you know, um, were they more free than they normally would be because there were less productions or how, what was your pitch? For the first season, for sure. Um, everyone was really at the beginning of the pandemic in the US and, and the beginning of lockdown. <clears throat> and everyone was just home going crazy. <laughs> so I didn't need to do much convincing. Um, I mean, everybody wanted to read the script, obviously. And I think it hinged on them liking the script um, and wanting to play the part. Um, but I think it was interesting because everyone was kind of trying to figure out how to pivot in that moment. And people were doing readings of things online. Um, and I think, you know, when I was talking to the actors, uh, some of them were a little bit frustrated by the way that, that that was working, like doing a reading of a feature film on Zoom. It was, they, you know, it, it was confusing and long and and I think what resonated for the actors about this is that a it was short and b <clears throat> it was written specifically for zoom so it all made sense like it was people in the pandemic talking to each other um, and it just felt very familiar and organic and when we were filming you know I would I would take out my little box on the zoom screen and it was just the two of them talking to each other um, and I think that writing for the medium specifically made it an appealing project for them to work on. Um, and in the second season, when I was reaching out to actors who I didn't have a direct relationship to, um, I think a big part of the pitch was them seeing the episodes that had already been created and enjoying those episodes. And, uh, and some really lovely actors had taken part in those as well. So I think it kind of set a, a standard. Um, and then reading the script, um, which oftentimes I would tweak uh, with them in mind once I knew which actors we were approaching. I'd be like, oh, this person would be so great. So I was really writing it with the actors in mind. And I think that, um, you know, that made it appealing for them too. I'm really curious about set dressing, like in, in the way that you would have the actors get their backgrounds ready like did you do any of that or was it just sort of like oh whatever was there you would just go with like did you set aside time to talk and discuss about the backgrounds yeah we we did like at the beginning of our rehearsal we would uh you know be on zoom and then i would see where they were and if the background was was working. Some of them had a real knack for it <laughs> and set everything up really perfectly with the lighting and everything in advance. Um, and sometimes it wasn't perfect at the beginning and we'd, you know, move around and uh, kind of tweak what, what worked. And we were also, <laughs> we were also filming across several different countries. Um, so I had an actor in Paris and London and the Dominican Republic and New Zealand. And um, so it was figuring out also time zones because sometimes the script was written that the two characters are actually in the same house. Like for example, there's a husband and wife who aren't talking to each, to each other. So they're doing, they're talking to each other via zoom, even though they're in the same house. But one actor 
was in London and another actress was here in New York. And so just like matching the, the lighting. So that the daytime, you know, day night works. Um, yeah. So we, we kind of figured it out, I think, as we went along. And then some actors are just uh, natural uh, lighting and set designers. <laughs> I'm trying to put together like what your week or your day might have been like when you first started, or maybe even, you know, in second season, third season, because we're in a global pandemic. I don't know what your day job is, but you're producing this content on a regular basis, not really knowing if it's going to be monetized, right? Because it's episodic and it's like this wild west and all these questions. And then just keep it on pushing forward in the creation of this content. So I guess I'm curious, how did you sustain the level of enthusiasm while in the, in the midst of just like massive global trauma? Uh, well, I think really at the beginning, I, I had a, a very part-time day job that moved to be remotely in a kind of complicated way. I was doing like song leading and storytelling for little kids, which moved to Zoom, which was interesting. Um, but um, I think that for me, it was a really necessary creative outlet. So that's where my energy was coming from. It was definitely not with any sort of eye on monetizing it or even really building on it in the long term, because at every point when we were making it, it was never clear what was going to happen next and how long. I mean, you know, when I was making the first season, I had no idea that we'd get to a third season because I thought that it would be over already. I mean, I think even even now it's, it's, I mean, production has picked up for people who can afford to add whatever they need to 20% additional budget for COVID compliance. But yeah, I think it was, it was always the intention to just find a creative outlet and, and not to, not as like a career stepping stone something I mean I think it's interesting because it it ended up leading to some really interesting opportunities not monetary things per se but um just career-wise um I think it ended up opening doors which I think is uh, sort of always the case when you're when you're being creative and you're working on something that excites you um you can't really anticipate where it will lead but it's always good to be making something (laughs) but after the first season was done I no longer had my day job I was employed by um, unemployment which was actually great (laughs) I I, it was a great time to be unemployed um, because it gave me more free time and I felt like one of those fancy Europeans who I'd always meet at film festivals and they're like oh yes my government paid for me to make my film and then they sent me to this film festival for my short. (laughs) I was like, wow, that's amazing. Um, We don't have that here. But now I kind of feel like I I have, I'm a government supported artist without the government knowing. So yes, I actually ended up also teaching a class uh, in the midst of of part of this. Uh, I taught for a semester a class on making uh, films on Zoom (laughs) to film students who, you know, this was a great way for them to be able to continue doing productions um, while social distancing. So um, I think it's actually a great teaching tool making these sorts of Zoom films because it really forces a filmmaker to narrow in on writing good dialogue and working with actors, which especially in film school, those two things often fall by the wayside. So 
it was actually a great experience. Do you see yourself making more movies on Zoom, like outside of Quarantine I Love You? Like, is it something that you want to continue to do even when things are opened up and you can go back on sets? I, I'm a little Zoomed out <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> But I do wonder about that. I have thought about that because it does feel like there's been a big cultural shift. Um, people are are going to continue doing much more on, on Zoom than they ever did before. And it can be a really wonderfully visual medium. And it's very cheap <laughs> to film on Zoom. Um, <clears throat> and again, I think very kind of accessible in terms of the actors that you're able to work with because it's time efficient um so yeah I mean I think it is a possibility but uh I haven't I don't have plans at the moment for it show is to like demystify some processes of production but also to like um dispel myths so you got into Sundance you got into this beyond film program that is like essentially what people call a lottery ticket right you and and not an unearned lottery ticket but you know statistically it's very hard to get the attention of these companies and these nonprofits and support organizations can you talk about the direct result of Sundance in the sense of like did an agent call you the next day or did you receive what happened? Well, first, for full like disclosure and transparency, we didn't apply with the finished product to Sundance and get accepted. Um, the process was different because it was actually made for this Beyond Film initiative. So I was already collaborating with Leela Meadow Connor and her organization Mama Film on the second season of Quarantine I Love You. And she was working with Sundance um, and her organization on the film um, as a satellite partner for Sundance. And so that's how we kind of came aboard this special initiative that they had really for the first time, it was part of their being um, a remote festival for the first time. Um, so I feel like we kind of just, you know, snuck in to the Sundance label um, in a kind of surprising way, definitely not a traditional route um, of like applying to Sundance and getting accepted into the film festival. And so I, I, there wasn't like, oh, your project is up on the Sundance site and you're there. Like I, I wasn't at the festival to like meet and schmooze and because there was no festival. But um, I think that having that stamp, that Sundance stamp is, is inevitably going to be helpful. And you, you were talking about kind of like demystifying how, how things work. I think it, it is kind of mystifying still to me uh, because I think that all of these kind of stamps of approval, what people are really looking for is just that you've been vetted um, by someone in some way. Yeah, I don't know what, what it means. Um, it's stupid but... is what it means, but, <laughs> but it sounds yeah, like I mean, you understand that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I, well, I think the thing is, is that, right, like if my toilet's overflowing, I need a plumber. I can either like go to the, no one has a phone book, but wherever you go, like Google <laughs> to find a plumber, or I can call my friend and be like, hey, have you ever had like a really great plumber? that my toilet's overflowing. And they're like, oh yeah, I've used this guy. He's fantastic or gal, plumber, whatever. So you, you do that because then you, you know that like this person's been tested, tried and tested and they're gonna fix your toilet. So I feel like filmmaking is a very risky proposition because it's usually very expensive to make a film. And uh, it, depend it demands the cooperation of a lot of people and a lot of people giving their time and resources and money. 
And so uh, it's a risky proposition and people want some sort of assurance that it's going to work and that you're going to work and you're going to do your job. But on the other hand, it's also an art form. In Hollywood, it's become very much like a business form, but it is an art form. And so it is very subjective and like, who's a good artist and what's a good film and does Sundance like it? And do I like the films that play at Sundance? I mean, it's just like all very like, who the hell knows, <laughs> but everyone's trying to get a read on something that will make it feel like more of a sure thing and less of a risky bet, which I think it always ultimately is a very risky bet. So that's what I think that is. And so you kind of have to spin your story uh, and get as many people recommending you as a plumber as possible. <laughs> With that in mind, like now that the the show is done, I mean, are you doing a fourth season or is it? No, no, there's no fourth season in the work. I, I'm, I'm really happy to be getting back to my feature script projects that can't be filmed via Zoom and will cost millions <laughs> of dollars to make. <laughs> But I, I did feel like I was ready to, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like banging my head against the wall trying to work on those projects and stepped away. And now I feel really eager to to go back to them. So, so the question from there is like, are you basically back at square one now after the show is out? Is it just like, you know, finishing your script, raising money, you know, just the same process that you would have done before then? Or has this somehow opened up some new doors, new avenues for you that are yeah. going to kind of make it easier to, you know, get your your work done? Yeah, I think it provided me some really invaluable experience as a writer and director. And I think it gave me some credibility as a director working with such wonderful actors. I mean, like no one's a, an A-list celebrity, super, super famous person, but a lot of recognizable, wonderful actors. Um, so I think that having that under my belt is definitely super helpful for me personally. Like I, I know that I learned a lot from the process and I feel like as a credential, I think that's going to be helpful. Um, and as a writer, I think that it sharpened um, my writing skills, just having to do this really fast turnaround. And I think that for the scripts that I am working on, I think one door in to getting things made is having actors who are excited to, to act in, in the project. And I think that I've maybe also built credibility with potential actors who who I could reach out to. And I think that that could help get the project made. And I also am considering doing one of the things that I said at the beginning was a really bad idea at the beginning of the pandemic, which is a reading of, of my feature scripts, because I feel like I do have a better understanding of how it could work now in this medium. And I think that it would A, allow me to get some really great actors together for reading those roles. And then that's, um, you know, as opposed to, the reading that I was supposed to have for one of my features last April at this really wonderful theater in New York. And I had, um, and the theater was like excited about hosting the reading for the screenplay and getting great New York theater actors on board um, for the reading. But that would have just happened, you know, one time. And I could have invited like X people and who knows who would have showed up. But if I do do a virtual reading, then potentially it's something that I could share in, in the future. Uh, with agents and managers or with investors. Yeah, so I think that it, it's, I'm not back to square one. I think both as an artist, um, I've grown and I do think that, uh, that the experience will 
will act as some sort of stamp of approval for for getting new projects made. I hope. <laughs> I have a question, but I, as per usual, it's fully it's not fully formed. So let's see if we could get there while I talk. You are a caretaker. You, in addition to being an artist, you're a caretaker. And unfortunately, I feel like um, a lot of mothers get uh, pegged for questions like these. So I apologize for being a part of that crowd. I'm also a working mom. Um, so I, I feel <laughs> I feel the annoyance, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you um, do you have any concerns or anxieties about the idea of balance? I don't believe balance exists, but in terms of working in this industry that overworks artists and maintaining like a healthy family life. Do you have any thoughts about when the industry opens up um, strategies for getting through that? Yes, I have two uh, little kids in my life. (laughs) Um, And I think that for a while, I, I found it quite hard to to find a balance I mean not really a balance just like to to claim my space as as a as a creative person because I felt the responsibility towards caring for them but also towards like having an income (laughs) um and so of course the first thing to go out the window is the thing that a doesn't care for them and b provides no income um so I think that it took me a while to understand that just because it doesn't provide an income instantaneously doesn't mean that it's not part of a viable career path, um, which allowed me to make more space for it. But it is interesting. I mean, one of the reasons that Leela Meadowconner and I started working together was I had this idea for some sort of program that would help um, women screenwriters um, who are also caregivers um, to kind of find a stepping stone between their finished screenplays and production. Um, just recognizing the fact that, that there are a lot more hurdles for, for moms to, to overcome in this process. That's already very hard. Um, <clears throat> and it's funny, one of the things that we were just talking about that I was like, oh, why isn't this a thing? Um, whenever you fill out applications for grants or labs or contests or whatever, um, they ask questions about other things that are potential hurdles for you, like your your background or your uh, gender identity, like things like that. And and I'm like, I really wish they would have a box for mom, which I think might sound very controversial um, because, you know, becoming a mother is a choice as opposed to other identities that we're, we're born with. I think that there is a lot of value in recognizing that that's like a a big part of life and that for women it also entails some hurdles extra hurdles that they have to cross um and and for there to be some recognition of that because right now I feel like if there's any recognition of that it's kind of like the opposite like there might be some doubt as to your ability to do your job because you're a mom and I think that uh I I would usually Gwyneth Paltrow would be the last person that I would ever quote (laughs) but I read an interview with her I think it was in the New York Times I did a piece on her and and she was asked about how she hires for her company and she talked about hiring a lot of mothers and I believe the quote is that bitch will get shit done (laughs) and uh 
And I'm like, yes, Gwyneth, that's true. Because you do have a time crunch and you have to do a lot with the time that you have. So you will get shit done. Um, so there you go. <laughs> so you've made a feature before this, this web series, you know, that you directed, starred in. Um, and now you, you have this, this whole web series thing that happened where you three seasons. The question is, like going out of your first feature into your web series and now coming out the end of it, like how have you changed as a director through that time? Like, like or have you changed? Like has, ha- have you learned things like doing the quarantine I love you that you didn't know about yourself as a director after the first feature? And if so, what are they? And how are you gonna take those into your, your next pro- project? Well, I guess my, my theme now as I'm discovering it while speaking to you is that a lot of times when I enter into projects, I don't really know that I'm doing the thing that I end up doing. So my feature, Scientist's Guide to Living and Dying, um, I knew that I was making a feature, but I didn't know that I was directing it. And I wasn't really directing it at first. Um, my my partner in child making and filmmaking um, is, is also a filmmaker. And he was dir- the director um, for the beginning parts for the production parts of it. And then I ended up being the director for the post-production because it's a fictional narrative, but really it was made like a documentary because we followed my own real life pregnancy. We filmed a little bit each month of my pregnancy and then also after my pregnancy. Um, and then and, and then we had a, a new baby, so we weren't touching the footage. And then it was about looking at the footage and seeing what else we needed um, with reshoots and kind of piecing the narrative together, which had kind of shifted because it had evolved over the pregnancy. We, it was like a, making a documentary, but a fiction documentary <laughs> with a real life pregnancy. So I only really became the director in this post, like in the editing, sound design, reshoot process. And I learned a lot from, from that project, namely also that I did want to direct more so than I wanted to act. And I think that in Quarantine I Love You, I, it's the first time I've really just had from beginning to end uh, the writer, director, or creator role. I mean, even down to the editing. So it's made me excited about working, um, continuing to work in that way. Not that I wanted to have all the roles at the same time, but it definitely is the first time that it's felt appealing to me, this kind of showrunner possibility either like doing a limited series or, or a regular series or, or even for a film, but like just having that kind of big bird's eye view of like seeing a project through um, from start to finish. I don't know if that answered your question. I don't remember exactly what the question was, but. I mean, yeah, like, like at least like 75% of it, I guess the thing is, you know, what I'm, what I'm really, even after hearing your answer, I'm really curious. I mean, you kind of developed as a director from your feature into this, this series. And now, you know, you're like a fully formed, confident director, writer, you know, producer. So like now that you're in this position, like what are what challenges are you excited to to take on in your next project? Like, you know, having gone through this transformation through these these two projects. Yeah. I guess Quarantine I Love You was the first time I I had kind of no strings attached, other people's money <laughs> to make things with. Um, like I didn't have to do a Kickstarter and I didn't have to do anything crazy to get the money, make a bake sale stand or anything. Um, I just was like entrusted with the money that I needed to, to make the project happen. 
Um, and I'm excited to continue that <laughs> in the future, um, getting other people's money to make things. Um, but I think it's given me the confidence also to be able to do that because I think like that's kind of the natural next progression, stepping stone from like super scrappy using my own life savings and other people's life savings <laughs> to make things uh, to something more sustainable and um, uh, and uh, and having the kind of support that I need to to do that. Yeah, so I I'm excited to. I mean, the, the two feature films that I'm working on are not scrappy, low budget scripts. Um, and I don't want to scrapify them <laughs> in order to make it possible. I would like to actually be able to, to dream big and, and to create these big worlds, which is what I'm naturally drawn to, I think, as a, as a creator. So I, I'm hoping to kind of like take this energy and momentum um, and sense of confidence in my abilities and to move forward into into newer and bigger projects than I've done so far. So I think I can just like hear like a listener hearing the show and whisper to themselves, yeah, but how? So like what <laughs> what is that next step? Is is it connecting with the producer of the show and working with them? Is it attaching talent? What, what do you see as the next step to getting the project made? Yes, I think my next step specifically for, for one of the projects, doing a reading with uh, the biggest kind of talent that I can get attached uh, with my the connections that I now have with it, my casting director um, and the agencies of the actors that we've worked with and possibly some of the actors themselves. Ideally, there's like four main lead roles. And if I can get an actor who's sufficiently interested, I feel like that would be the first step. It is really hard to have like a clear, like this is how you do things, which is why it's like so mind-bogglingly difficult because there isn't like a blueprint because what worked for one person may not work for another and and even if it sort of does it's a little bit different like that you can never exactly replicate things um until you've made it quote unquote whatever the hell that means so <laughs> um i think i think that you just kind of amble along i mean i have another friend who is in pre-production on her first feature and whenever I do make my my feature, I, I, I will feel like it will be my first feature because my first first feature, I didn't really direct it from start to finish. And, and it was more of an experiment <laughs> that resulted in a, in a feature film. But anyway, um, my friend who's working on her first feature, so her script placed really highly in a really reputable um, competition. And that's helped her secure producer and the producer is helping her secure the funding. Um, so I, I think I have a sense of some different routes that I can go. Um, the second script that I'm, that is in earlier stages of development, um, I am consciously writing it as a lower budget um, than this other one that's really kind of ridiculous. Like it's a Melissa McCarthy kind of movie. Um, so the other one I'm trying to not make that um, just so I do have an option that's maybe a little bit more realistic. I don't know. It's like the, the thing that everyone says of like faking it till you make it, which I, again, as I was saying before, this, it's such a risky proposition. You really have to 
kind of somehow believe that you're able to do it and then convince everyone else that that's true, <laughs> however you can. Um, so I don't know exactly how that will be, but I'll, I'll notify you <laughs> if it works. Yeah, let us know what you find out. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's a, that's on a good note to end with our, or get to our final five questions. Um, so I'll start first. What's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? First film I ever made was called I Am God. Um, I had just dropped out of school and moved to New York and was living in an illegal loft in Bushwick. And I was 19 and had never studied filmmaking. And I'm from Israel originally. And I wrote this short film that I thought would solve peace in the Middle East. Um, and so I just talked with as many filmmaker people that I'd met in New York as I could. And essentially the, their bottom line was like, it's crazy what you're trying to do, but you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. So that's to your advantage <laughs> because you'll just, you slog your way through it, which is really like, like with quarantine, I love you. And like with my feature scientist guide to living and dying, I just kind of like went into something, not knowing what I was doing and figured it out as I went along. So I, I, so after my first year in New York, after having dropped out of school, I went to Israel that summer, met up with some people who I got connected with uh, in New York, um, used my savings for my bat mitzvah, and <laughs> and uh, and made this film. Like I just spent this summer um, in Tel Aviv uh, making this film about a man who arrives in Israel and um, believes himself suddenly to be God and uh, meets with a, Palest a young Palestinian man. So that was my first film. And how do I feel about it now? I mean, I have a lot of, uh, I have a lot of love for it just because of what it was and the process that went into making it and the kind of the insanity that was trying to get that thing together. Um, and, and my intention behind it, which I feel like I, I've learned that um, in order to make uh, films with any sort of social impact you also have to have a good sense of humor which I think maybe that film did not have enough of <laughs> so that's what I've learned but I do still love it in my own way maybe others don't I'm obviously likely not but I do <laughs> um, what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received I guess the best advice was that kind of pat on the back that I got going into making this like that if you don't know what you're getting yourself into then you're probably in the best possible spot because if if you knew how hard it was going to be the chances of you going and doing it would be pretty small so best to just go into it with all of your passion and energy and vision and not think about how hard it's going to be because you there's nothing you can do about that do you have a goal as a filmmaker i mean i think that there i haven't seen a lot of films that are perfect for me in my vision my experience of them and even like a filmmaker who I love and adore many of their films but they made one film that was really perfect <clears throat> I would like to make that one perfect film <laughs> at one point in my life um, that I know is really perfect and I think I, I don't remember what it's some uh, some show on NPR I don't remember what it was maybe it was Ira Glass but they had this thing about how when you're an artist and you're making your work it's Ira Glass and you know, it, is. it is Ira Glass yeah. right and you know it's not good enough yet but you know you know that it's not good enough but you're like still you still keep going and I and I want to get to a place where I make the thing that I know is good enough 
Um, and I know it. And there's never going to be a consensus because some of the films I think are most brilliant and other people didn't like. But I want to know that I made the best freaking film that I can make. <laughs> I, I want to have a side chat here because I've been thinking about this a lot lately because another guest of ours answered, like, I want to make that one good movie, that one movie that feels like, you know, a taxi driver or, you know, whatever, like a, a Jaws or something. But the thing is, like, I don't think Steven Spielberg walks around thinking Jaws is perfect or mm-hmm. Scorsese walks around thinking Raging Bull is perfect. You know, like these movies that we right. high, hold as such high regard. So I almost think that that's a myth. Like we're never going to, have that feeling yes, no matter how not great perfect but but good that i know that i made something right. good i guess not right. perfect perfect they it's must they good. must know those movies are good i guess right i think they I know they're so. good i hope so <laughs> i hope so i feel like maybe charlie kaufman who really is my idol oh. i feel like maybe he goes around wondering if his movies are good yeah <laughs> he probably thinks they're trash i know he's like oh what a terrible movie but i feel like spielberg and scorsese they're like oh yeah it's a good film. <laughs> it's about self-esteem too. Um, if you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you would give yourself? I, I, I'm really conflicted about this. Like when I do my own revisionist history of like what my life could have been like if I'd made other choices or had gotten better advice. Um, and, and part of me is like, oh yeah, I'd be like much further along and more successful and everything would be perfect. But I, but I also feel like I do have this kind of like woo-woo sensibility of, of things kind of being the way they are for, for a reason and, and our paths kind of unfolding the way they unfold uh, for a reason. So it's, it's more of an advice that I give myself now constantly, <laughs> which is just to like hold fast to that understanding that I'm living my one unique life and it isn't going to look like anyone else's and and my successes and failures and creations will not look like anyone else's. And to just like be at peace with that, because there's like this, this old Jewish saying, I think it's Jewish, I don't know, I heard it as a Jewish saying with Moses, like going up to heaven and, and, you know, opening up the gates and God opens up the gates and he doesn't ask Moses, why weren't you X, Y, Z? It's like you, you're meant to live your life as your own unique individual. And I totally butchered whatever that saying was. But Mm -hmm. the point is, is that when you die and go to heaven, no one will ask you why you weren't Barbara Streisand because Barbara Streisand was Barbara Streisand. So and also mirror with from what is it? Mirror with two faces. It's not that good. Like, let's be honest. Like you don't want to compare yourself (laughs) to that. Exactly is making movies hard it's super hard for sure yeah it is really hard i think it's an enormous undertaking it's like building a business an entire business um and like how many people do you know that (laughs) keep scrapping (laughs) whatever business they had and starting to build a new one all the time (laughs) i mean that feels like again very dodgy business proposition yeah i think it is hard but i think that i mean When I was studying acting, the thing that I feel like every acting teacher would always be like, if you can do anything else, then do that. Like, don't do this. This is the worst thing. This is the hardest thing ever. If you can be anything else, go be that. Don't be an actor. And um, I was like, no, but I really want to be an actor. Uh, But then after I I made my feature and and had a kid um, and I wasn't acting for a while, I was like, oh, I'm getting by without being an actor. but I apparently cannot get by without writing. 
and and without filmmaking. So it, it is really hard, but if you can't not do it, then I guess you don't have a choice. <laughs> Uh, we are uh, out of time. So sell your wares. Tell us how people can support you. Well, you can watch Quarantine I Love You. Um, it's Q-I-L-Y, Quarantine I Love You. You can Google it, put it in YouTube um, and like the Quarantine I Love You page and the episodes and whatever and share them with your friends. Um, and you can also uh, go on my website, Needs on Mugger, and send me a note because I'd like to be your pen pal. And, um, and when I do make my feature, then please go watch that too. All right, what do you remember about Nitsan? I remember that she was very charming. And um, I thought like going into the, the conversation that we were talking to somebody who had like directed their first feature, which is true, she had. And then she would done this whole show and then she was working on her next thing. But like, what was really interesting to me about the conversation was like kind of learning that like, she was sort of growing into this director role through Quarantine I Love You. And that when she co-directed her for her first feature, it was more, she didn't really feel like the ownership over it in the same way that, you know, you normally do over a project when you direct it. And so it was kind of, I really liked like kind of her kind of chronicling this, her growth into being a director and a writer and an actor and not just one of those things, you know? And so I thought that was, that was very interesting. I think like kind of different than most of our conversations. But, but what about you? Do you remember anything about her conversation? I remember how like whenever we have an actress producer on the show, you and I always have this side conversation where I was like, why doesn't she direct? I'm so frustrated that she's letting someone else direct her content, whoever this actress producer is. And it made me really happy when Nitsan was like, I don't care about acting as much anymore. I just love directing. Like she found this love that I feel like a lot of actress producers that I know really do want to direct. They're just not willing to admit it. And it, it made me, I, basically I'm saying she made me feel validated in my opinion that a lot of actresses and producers are bomb directors are just like amazing directors and that they should try it more. So I remember feeling right and feeling validated. Yeah. It was almost like a transition from acting to yeah. directing in a way. And it was, that was one of the more fascinating parts about it is that like her love of art changed through mm -hmm. her being an artist, which uh, was really, really interesting. Um, yeah. Get shorty. So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. So this week we have a short from writer director Chon Star Anderson, who we've talked about on the show quite a bit because he's been on to talk about his film Lace, which uh, we had on many, many, many moons ago. And then he recommended a filmmaker uh, to the show to get shorty. And so, you know, like he sent in this other movie, at, but like kind of right before he recommended these other filmmakers. And I was like, you know what, let's just put this in the back burner, Tron Star. I'm not quite ready to have a repeat filmmaker. I watched the movie at the time, I loved it. <laughs> so it was kind of hard because I liked it so much uh, to be like, no, no. And like almost wondering like, why didn't he send this to us? But I guess I get it. It was more, the other one's more personal film. This is more just crazy balls fun. Um, but uh, anyways, without me ruining it, let's hear Tron Star talk about Pizza Deliverance. Hi, Liz Norick. Thanks again for having me back and watching all of my dumb films. Uh, I feel like there's better ones out there, so hopefully more people get in contact with you. But in the meantime, I'm happy to fill the void. Cool. So when it came to Pizza Deliverance, uh, the reason I made it a short rather than any other medium is probably purely down to experience. This was my grad film coming out of uni, so 
you know, a, a short film is a lot easier than making a feature for your first time. Uh, it was the second short that I had made. I'd made one uh, action comedy short before that called L Plates, which was a lot smaller in scale with pizza deliverance. I wanted to make it much bigger, but uh, making a feature right out of uni was too much for me. Um, I think the, the, the story being about a pizza delivery guy makes it probably obvious that I was a pizza delivery guy. I was delivering pizzas for six, seven years. It was always my side hustle, as I'm sure it is for plenty of people in our industry. Um, and I, I always, you know, wanted things to be more exciting. Uh, I feel like most people feel that way. And it was funny because a lot of feedback I got from the, the film, people couldn't buy into such a crazy idea. They were like, oh, surely, you know, you'd reveal at the end it's all in his head or something. And I would always say, why would I do that? This is all in my head. Why would I make it in someone else's head? If I'm going to make a story about it, I'm just going to make the story that's in my head, which is silly fun times. Uh, coming up with the funds was, boy, that was a that was a job. We did uh, crowdfunding, which was great. Uh, you know, we did Kickstarter. Um, we had a very large social media push. Uh, I was doing like live videos after every shift at Domino's, just like pushing the film out there as much as possible. Uh, we did a live stream on Kickstarter because Kickstarter was like doing this telethon style thing where you could pledge money while watching the video. Um, so me and my producer Dez ended up eating a one meter diameter pizza. Um, it was a competition at this pizza store where it cost $40, but if you actually finish the whole thing within an hour, you got $100. So it would have been $60 to the film. We didn't succeed. I threw up blood and it was all on glorious HD. Uh, but that live stream actually ended up earning us $300 in pledges. So that like paid in itself. Absolutely. Um, rounding off after Kickstarter finished, we ended up doing a second crowdfunding push through what we have in Australia called the Australian Cultural Fund or the ACF. It's essentially rather than getting physical stuff back, um, you're able to get tax incentive back. So every don donation via the ACF is tax deductible. So that was really good for going towards businesses. And we figured uh, the idea of the film is meant to be looking at a small business being taken over, we could approach some of those small businesses. My producer actually had bigger ideas and he ended up sending out this massive three-page email to the Australian CEO of Domino's, Don Mage, who was, I was able to get his email because I was an employee there. Um, it was listing off, you know, how we love pizza and we love film and we just want to get the art out into the world. And Don ended up replying with just one line, which was, how much do you want? Now, at this point, I was like, just ask for a cool mill, you know, just cool mill. He's a he's a CEO. He can handle a cool mill. Uh, Des ended up just asking for a thousand. But we got that thousand dollars straight from Domino's uh, into the ACF tax deductible for them. A thousand bucks for us. Brilliant. And we ended up overall uh, earning, I think it was an extra four thousand or three an extra three thousand via the acf for a seven thousand budget overall we had to spend a lot of money on prosthetics and stuff because i really wanted to see someone's face get smashed in so money um before making the short you know like like any of us i i was graduating from uni so i was like i'm gonna make this film and it's gonna be the the toast of khan and i'm gonna be some great heralded filmmaker um 
obviously that didn't happen, uh, but it did further my career in ways that I definitely cannot complain about. I'm so grateful for the opportunities that Pizza Deliverance ended up giving me. Uh, I was able to work with some great companies doing a transmedia advertisement campaign for one of our festival runs for a local festival, the West End Film Festival, which was really great working in this completely di different atmosphere. Um, and then also people loved the film and because it was able to get into so many local festivals, people started coming to me and actually wanting me to work with them, which had never happened before. Uh, I ended up getting hired for uh, some writing gigs. Uh, so far, none of them have been made, but hell, I've been able to write something for someone else. It's an opportunity I never would have thought I would have had five years ago. Um, and even now, uh, I finally got a full-time position at a post-production house in Brisbane. Um, which is like kind of what I was always working towards, but I never really thought it would happen. So the fact that it's happening now and the people there are seeing pizza deliverance and going, oh yeah, we want to work with this guy. Uh, it's, you know, unbelievable, honestly. Uh, now that it's out in the world, I'm hoping that at least people have fun with it. That That's all I ever wanted from it was that people have fun and they look at my dumb stuff and think this guy, He's a fun, dumb guy, and uh, I hope at least it does that. Uh, I don't know if I would do anything story-wise for the short, but I've always wanted to make it a feature. I always kind of looked at this as, as a proof of concept for a feature. If I were to do a feature, it wouldn't be so die-hard focused. It would definitely be more lethal weapon focus, with the entire story unraveling of why are all these customers disappearing. Oh, it's because there's a big company coming through. I'd be kind of playing off that really lame 90s uh, stereotype where every film was about a big company taking over the little company, uh, but in the style of a Shane Black action thriller. Um, I haven't gotten around to that yet. Uh, hopefully one day, uh, just not today. Um, <laughs> as for uh, stunts and actions, I think the most obvious one that I'm missing is a car chase. Absolutely, I wanted to do a car chase. You're gonna do a pizza delivery film, you wanna have a pizza delivery chase. Half of what we do is in our car. Um, I, I didn't have the budget for that. We raised like $7,000, but unfortunately, uh, driving cars at high speed costs slightly more than that. So, unfortunately, I couldn't. That's definitely, you know, that's the, that's the beginning of the third act for the feature, is an epic car chase, but until then, I'll just have to I'll just have to survive with me getting my face smashed in uh, and having blood splattered everywhere. Uh, I couldn't ask for more really. Uh, thanks again for watching my films guys and uh, hope I hope more of my friends end up uh, contacting you because I will keep annoying them for you guys and for me. Bubble. Can we admit that this show is called Making Movies? Okay, it's called Making Movies is Hard, hosted by the two of us, co-starring Gary Kennedy and Trent Star Anderson. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they do have a lot of repeat appearances, don't they? <laughs> yes. And then with like special with and and oh my god, who are those amazing people out of Texas that I like always remember the names Tra of? Travis, and, Travis and Madison um, with Madison, Travis yeah. and Madison. 
Like that is what, that is our show. Sorry. I didn't mean to deviate from the goal of talking (laughs) about it shorty. Tell me, tell me why you love this movie. I want to hear about it. Well, so I I watched up a little bit of it again this morning, just because I hadn't seen it in a while. And one of the things I really appreciate is like the very first line of the movie. Like if you're not paying attention and you don't know what the movie is, like it almost doesn't really make sense because he's like, Oh yeah. Are you like some sort of plant for, for Romo's pizza or something? And you're like plant for Romo's like, what are they talking about? And then like, as some, and then it's like turns into this big like you know the pizza palace versus romo's pizza sort of like thing and it's like romeo this, you know, romeo romeo Isn't romeo it? i think it's hard yeah, to tell with the accent but i thought it was romeo Ro- romeo, romeo. i don't know but i really appreciate like the amount of story they they jam into like every minute of this movie and i love the world building around like these like like you know warring like pizza places and like with this extreme violence and uh, I thought it was really fun I like the one-liners um I like that you just get right into it and I thought that like for a low budget movie the action was actually pretty good I was like ah this is awesome <laughs> but what and about the makeup you? the makeup was really good too like oh, consistent yeah. and the effects um no I really really enjoyed this one and I found myself asking the same question that you did was like why didn't he send this one first? I think this is, <laughs> I know you liked Lace. I wasn't the biggest fan of Lace, but this one, it's like, seems just eon stronger to me. Um, I, th- I would say the only real weaknesses of this are like convenient villains. Like it was really <laughs> convenient that the villains weren't as good of fighters as the Pizza Palace fighters were. Like they were just kind of taken off guard, caught off guard very easily. And, um, you know, not always capitalizing on opportunities to kill the pizza palace protagonists. So I would say they're very <laughs> convenient as villains. And I didn't, I thought some of the sound actually was a little too much. It was like they had like gross mm. make out noises when they were making out. And the like, the music <laughs> was like this kind of like Mickey mouse, like doo, 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 music. Yeah. Um, but I love the names. I was catching that they were throwing, you know, they referenced die hard and like, every single character name that they had. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought it was really funny, really clever. I kept trying to think, what would I cut out of this? Because it felt a little long, but I couldn't think of anything to cut out. It was yeah. like the script was really tight. Maybe the edit could have been slightly tighter. That's the only, my only complaint. I don't know. I don't really know what I would complain about this movie. I mean, it, it was fun. <laughs> I enjoyed it. It was so goofy and it was obviously made with a love uh, of these like 90s action movies, especially Die Hard, you know, and there was a lot of like over the top jokes and silliness. And I, I always appreciate that. Like the, the the making out thing I thought was, I think I laughed at that, at that over the top sound effect thing. Um, I mean, it's gross, but it's funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I probably, I could probably go through it with a, a fine tooth comb and find things I didn't like about it and things I complained about. But I think overall, it was just a, a damn good time. And for these kinds of indie action shorts, like I think you can't really go do much better than this. So I hope everyone watches it. I didn't even know that Charnstar did it because I didn't read the emails that you, you know, I just, you just said, watch this and I watched it. And at the right. very <laughs> end, I just saw in the credits visual effects by Charnstar. And I was like, Charnstar's everywhere. Like, I didn't know that he had directed it. I thought that he was right. just sent recommending another film by another person right. that he had worked on. Right. Um, but yeah, Charnstar is like our, our buddy. Good job. 
future, but yeah, I think a uh, side note, believe that this is his first uh, short film that he ever directed. Um, and then I can't remember the story of how he got the money together or how he, this thing came apart, but it was like part of some sort of contest or something that he won. There was some, or grant or something. There was something that came about of him having this opportunity and then like having some money to spend. And then he like hired a bunch of like people with more experience than him to like, you know, help him make the movie. Um, yeah, but anyways, hopefully he talks about it in his uh, little piece that we just heard. Uh, but anyways, let us know. Do you guys dig this or do you hate it? We'd love to, we'd love to hear. <laughs> All right, so we have to get to the nitty gritty of whatever you want to talk about, right? All right, you had you had yeah, something you wanted to whatever you want to do. Let's let's talk about feelings and goals and aspirations. Oh, it sounds like you're gonna, you're dreading this. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I did take notes because I was like, I don't even know what my answer is for these questions. Um, but please set us up, set us up way better. Yeah. Than I did. Well, this is just something I, I you know I started feeling like this way like last week, and I I think I've been kind of feeling this way since the Jen McGowan conversation because you know she she did bring up some good points of like, you know, you, you should have a specific goal. You should have a plan. Like you should know exactly what you're going to do. And I mean, I feel like those are good points, but I feel like in one hand, it's like, isn't it a goal enough to tell great stories and to make films and to, you know, grow as a filmmaker and like make your, your art as good as it possibly can be. And then just try to step stone up towards the next bigger thing. And that's kind of like where my head's at with my filmmaking and like what I'm trying to accomplish. And, you know, obviously wherever things go, they go. Um, but that's my approach is like each one should be a better story, like a tighter movie, doesn't necessarily have to be a bigger budget, but just the movie itself should be better each time. So I, I'm, I'm just thinking like, you know, you watch all these movies, like we have all these filmmakers on the show and, you know, at, at some point you're like, what, what is the point, man? Like we have like all these, these movies that uh, we talk about, they come up, they go onto to services, they, they appear, they're, they're available for rent. And then they just, they're gone in the ether like like even the Nicolas cage um you know uh, wally's w wonderland movie or willie's wonderland whatever that's called like that's like another example it's like is that movie gonna have any lasting impact are people gonna be know like know or think about this movie in a year from now or is it just gonna be like another nick cage movie that like slips in in a year and like another like low budget action movie and another low budget sci-fi movie and it's like like, you know, I'm thinking back back to when I was a kid and like, you know, the lasting impressions that you had when you go to a movie theater and you see films like, you know, Independence Day or like, you know, like any kind of special movie that we all remember. It's like, do those movies, like, can they even exist anymore? Or is it just going to be like Marvel movie after Marvel movie? And like, like, are these special cinematic moments being created still? Or is it now just indie films that, are forgotten and big budget Marvel movies that, you know, are being pushed out to, to the masses. Where's the middle class? So, I mean, it's that it, right. I think about middle class, but it's actually the mid tier budget film that you're talking about, right? Where it's not the tenfold right. film and it's original IP and it's just telling a, a heart, it's the Spielberg. You're talking about Spielberg films in the it, late Maybe, yeah. yeah, or just like, you know, the, the low budget or the lower budget, um, you know, like thrillers or, mm -hmm. you know, even like the, the, the dramas, like um, 
Frankie and Johnny, like, you know, with Al Pacino and, and Michelle Pfeiffer from like the eighties, like yeah. these movies, like, the, are they going to get made anymore? Like, are there going to be these kinds of other films that you can see, or is it really just going to be like the low budget, like down and dirty indies or the Marvels? Like, or is, the is Oscar fair. Cause like what you're describing, right. I mean, it's like, I saw, um, the father this year. I was one of the very few people I know who watched <laughs> the father with Anthony Hopkins, which was amazing terrifying film but yeah it was like basically a three-hander four-hander but really kind of a two-hander and it's like where else would this film get any attention other than leading up to the oscars you know like a really thoughtful substantial drama with really good performances that doesn't have a gimmick to it but anyway wait you started talking about something and then it kind of evolved to something else but you started talking right. about goals right? right right and i think it's a really scary question to tackle because I really genuinely feel on Monday, I'm like, oh, it's Monday and Mondays are scary and intimidating. And you're like, am I going to get everything done? And the next thing you know, it's Thursday night. And you're like, where did the week go? So what I'm saying is I like what Jen is saying about taking stock and figuring out your goals and then kind of working from there. Because if you don't work strategically, your week will disappear without you having progressing on those goals. Mm -hmm. um, but I agree that I don't know what my goals are either other than to continue to make content. And what's even weirder from my perspective is like, I quit my job this year. So I'm consulting, but there's nothing as you know, stable about consulting and my husband's working. And this is the first time where I'm not the breadwinner. So it's this idea of like, Oh, am I receding into this like weird, like, I don't know, dependent? Like, am I receding into dependent status as I work on my films? Like, do you ever worry about that? The idea of like, if you haven't set up your economics right, but you have the, if you don't have the money, you have the time, but then the industry is so unpredictable in terms of what projects are gonna go, you could just be waiting forever to make the content and then you're not, contributing to yourself, your career, your pocketbook. See, now I'm just spinning us out to a whole another bigger question. It's not helpful for me to do that. <laughs> but it is what yeah. I'm inspired by to talk about is that like, you have to have a goal, but then like, there is no way to have a plan because you so much is out of your control. Yeah. I mean, it also kind of comes back to what well, you're saying, at least in my mind, comes back to this thing that we've talked about before, where it's like, do you wait for permission to make a film or do you just go out there and, and hustle your project together and, and, you know, build it from the ground up each time and, and make your film, you know? Yeah. And I kind of feel like it's like in the, in the one world it's like oh yeah it would be great if like you would just get that budget get that deal win that directing job you know get that next project going so you can you know perpetuate your career and like just continue directing film after film after film you know hopefully with a budget behind it hopefully with a paycheck behind it you know mm -hmm. but i mean i think for most of us it's probably going to be the same way that you made your first two features where it's like you're you're you know basically generating the project from the ground up by yourself. And then that's just what you do every time, every time, every time. Yeah. And I, I just, I guess I, what I'm trying to understand for myself and trying to figure out is like, is that what I want for my life? And, and is that something that I would be happy with? And, 
you know, it's, it's hard to really know until you do it a bunch. <laughs> like you can't just judge it off of one, not even well, two, maybe. But then if you do it a bunch, then you're, I mean, it takes years. So then you're lost five, six, seven years of your life right. testing to see, iterating to see if that's what you want, which is, is crazy. I think. But as a filmmaker, is that like, isn't that the goal just to have a body of work and to have grow, to have like personal growth as a, as a filmmaker and a storyteller and as an artist. And like, as long as you're growing and you're getting closer to like, you know, like, I can't remember which guest said it, but they're like, Oh yeah, I I hope to make a movie that is great one day. Maybe it was Larry Fessenden was like one day it'd be awesome to make a movie that was great, you know, and I haven't done it yet, but hopefully one day I will. Maybe it's not Larry Fessenden. Maybe it was somebody else. It's not Larry Fessenden. I, I'm like I cannot picture him saying that at all. Was that was that Dan Mervish? I, I can't remember. I it was some. It was Dan Mervish wanted to be a films maker. I remember that. I was like, "What's your goal? <laughs> be a films maker?" Then he like right. ended there. That was the end of the answer. Um, yeah. Though that is the thing. That is, you want to get better and better, right? You want to be a better yeah. and better storyteller. But I think you have to diversify. Like what I'm doing right now is I'm pitching on other people's features that are fully funded. Um, or are in the process of applying for funds. Like I'm making inroads in other projects while I'm developing my own. And I think you kind of have to do that. It's like one for them, one for you. You have to kind of like navigate career as a job and also something really personal. I, um, or else Mm -hmm. if it's just personal projects, then it is, then it's a hobby, I think. And it's okay if it's a hobby, but you're not building a career that way. Yeah, but are you or aren't you, right? Like, I guess that's that's my question. I think that's where I would challenge. If I had Jen right here, yeah. right now, that's probably what I would say to her is like, well, what's wrong with making your own movie, movie after movie after movie? Like, what? why isn't that a career? Why isn't that a filmmaking Because you're not making money. Yeah, but if you're not, yeah. So, but, but eventually, but everyone had to start at some place where they were doing that, right? Like, it's not like, unless you're like Tim Burton in, in the nineties, you're not getting your first film as a paycheck, right. right? Like how many people could you say now have gotten their first film as a paycheck film, as a career film? Like you basically have to start somewhere. And like, you know, if it takes three movies, four movies to get to that paycheck, is that really bad? Or is, is that, is that wasted time to you? Or do you feel like, like, what, what, like, why is that like, why is that less legitimate than, you know, doing it the other way where you're only taking paid work after you've, you know, got your calling card film set up. I don't think it's less legitimate. I just think that the model, like I can't figure out the economics of the model of the one film after another that you um, bootstrap. And I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of like um, Willie's Wonderland guy. Um, What is his name? Kevin. Kevin? Kevin. Yeah, Kevin. Kevin. And I, and he was saying his uh, he runs a med spa. And I was thinking of Dan Mervish on how his wife has a lucrative job. And I'm thinking of all these people, mostly men, whose wives have lucrative jobs and they get to make these movies. And there seems to be this kind of like um, ec- economic inequality <laughs> in, in, in these like partnerships. So I feel like the my suspicion is the way people have managed to sustain a life where they're making these bootstrap movies over and over again is that they have an asset 
like a spouse or real estate or money from their family that allows mm -hmm. them to do that. It's not less legitimate. It's just like, it's going to bleed you, I think, is the problem. Mm. Um, well, the economics of it don't make sense. And that's why we're looking at like pod filmmaking or doing a slate of films at once, because without the wholesale model, it's just so expensive. I think the base, I mean, yeah, you can make a movie for five, ten thousand dollars $10,000, but I really think the base level for an indie is like 75K if you're doing right. it and paying people for like a drama even like not even yeah. a horror movie you know because horror sci-fi those things they start to require other expenses that you right. know don't necessarily fall into that that seventy-five thousand. you know um yeah i i guess it's like if you're raising the money and you're and you're like bootstrapping it however you can whether it's your own money or it's someone else's money like you know I guess is that is that I guess it's all up to you if if they, if you feel like that's terrible or not. <laughs> like if you feel well, like other that's people like gamble, a terrible right? There's gamblers. There's people take vacations. There's people who go and you know they do extreme sports. They hike. They mountain right. climb. Like I think we just chose a really expensive hobby. Is is how I choose to look at it. I guess when when to you does it, it only turns from a hobby to a career or a hobby to a like a pro portfolio of work when you're making money at it is that basically or is it or is it critical acclaim is that part of it or what what to you like what makes it legitimate is it like does it have to be money and like critical acclaim or could it just be critical acclaim or does it have to or could it just be hmm. like the goodness of the work like what where is it for you well i think it's about defining the word career or that maybe we want to define the word job rather than career because career is so malleable but a job is something that sustains you so if you right. are getting future jobs from that film or if you are getting compensated financially if you're making partnerships i mean it's very malleable and i but i I guess what I'm thinking is like, okay, so I quit my job this year to become mm -hmm. freelance, but I have to admit the past two weeks, I've spent more time on my own writing than I have consulting and it's freaking me out. <laughs> it's like really scaring me. Because, oh, because you don't think like you, you don't see the, the future, like, you know, yeah. jobs or clients coming necessarily. Yeah. It's like I could work my ass off and try to get a bunch of clients and make a nominal more money and then have less time for writing. Or I could just say, I'm taking a few selfish years and I'm going to lean on my partner and I'm going to write and I'm going to get projects off the ground. But in terms of legitimacy, I don't think there's no, I don't think there's a line in the sand. I don't think, but I wouldn't tell people I'm a filmmaker because the majority you of You wouldn't money, tell yourself you're a filmmaker. If someone's like, what do you do? Uh, I say I work in distribution. That's what I tell people. You should also say that you're a filmmaker too, though. I mean, you've made multiple films. You're actively making films. So I don't feel like you can't, like, I don't think you should take that away from yourself just because you're not being paid to do it necessarily. I think that's you know? healthy. That's a really healthy piece of advice. But I think what you're, the question you're asking is so like potent that I like can't even <laughs> figure out a pathway to an answer. I'm just like, right thinking of 5 million other things that are tied to it that freak me out. And in terms of like, why do we do what we do? You know, I didn't have that ET experience or that Star Wars experience that everyone else 
Huh. <laughs> <laughs> so you I mean, like, like watching something in the theater or yeah. when you were younger that like really it struck you in a big Never way? Never had or... that. I wanted to be an actress. And then I went from being an actress to wanting to direct. So for me, it was just about a natural transition from acting. Um, mm. But most filmmakers that we know, they see some like amazing film in the theaters and they feel inspired in, in awe of that and they want to be a part of that right the magic yeah for me it, yeah I mean I've talked about this before but it, it was I don't know if it was a certain movie it was more like that was the thing I loved more than anything was always movies like that was if I could if I if someone was to ask me like what I wanted to do when I was a kid the answer would always be watch a movie that was like the thing that I just was so drawn to always and I never thought I could do it until I was much older like probably not until high school when I, when I was like, oh, maybe I could actually do this. Like I don't live in Los Angeles, but there is a there is a path for me to actually, you know, make my own movies, you know, and then it just from there it was it was over. That's all I wanted to do. And I think it's still all I want to do. It's like, you know, when I think about like things I could spend my time on, it's like there's other things I have interest in, you know, like like working out or like Muay Thai kickboxing or you know I just got chickens that I'm raising you know which is really fun <gasps> that's it. that is literally my life stream is to have chickens that's so cool okay sorry go on it's very easy <laughs> <laughs> we thought it was hard at first we were like oh how are we gonna get these chickens into their coop because we, we didn't get we didn't actually get babies we got adult chickens um and uh apparently they just actually go into their coop at night because they want to and you don't have to catch them. It's and you amazing. get fresh eggs and you get to have yeah, chickens. We've gotten five so far since Sunday. So that's been been magical. Um, and they are the best pets. They're really sweet. So anyways, I keep on my, my wife keeps on reminding me that we get we have really sweet chickens because they eat it out of our hand and they don't they don't run from us when we approach them, which is like, I guess what chickens normally do. And so, like, I think we got lucky. But anyways, big fan of chickens. Um, <laughs> but I guess what I'm, I think like through talking to you, like I, I've, I've kind of found out my own answer, you know, because mm -hmm. it's like just making the movie is a thing that I really like, you know, and, and I, I like the challenge of it. I like the, like that that's like this amazing goal to try to make a good movie, you know, like just making a movie is really hard. We've talked about this a thousand times, but trying to make a good movie is like damn near impossible. And yes. you see the people with money fail at it all the time. Even the legends who are really good at making, had made many, many good movies will continually make bad movies, <laughs> you know, as, and it's like, there, there is no answer to how to do it. And so it's like this amazing magical thing of like things just coming together to and I to be a part of that and to be there either as a producer as a director at whatever like that would be really special to be like a part of a really like a good movie that people respond to so that's what I'm like searching for and will maybe be searching for for the rest of my life but I don't think to me like it doesn't take anything away if I'm not getting paid to do it necessarily. Like I, I obviously will pay myself on my next movie just because I think I have to, like when I raise money, like I'll definitely take a paycheck, you know, unless maybe I won't, but I probably will. Um, but like, yeah, I don't know. It's just something that I think I'll always do. Um, and I just, I don't know. Like I think people who listen to the, to the Jan McGowan episode, I'm curious, like, what the reaction is going to be like it's like oh my gosh if i'm not like striving towards television like there's no point it's like i don't know maybe there is i love that reflection you just had and i'm also just thinking i looked back at my notes 
because I knew you were asking this question because I read the outline and um, I wrote a, a bunch of things. But the last thing I wrote was nothing else drives me crazy the way this does, you know, mm. and I think that's part of it. Like Sean, my husband, he drives me batshit crazy. He drives me nuts and I love him. You know what I mean? So I think <laughs> things that I love drive me crazy. And so I think that's also it. It's like there's this push and this pull that we're drawn to that gets under our skin that kind of unravels us a little bit. And maybe that's why it's really hard to find a rational reason for why we do it. And I, I don't know about legitimacy. I think that's our own personal war, whether we call ourselves a filmmaker or not. Right. But mm -hmm. um, as long as you keep on starting projects and keep on <laughs> trying to make movies, um, then you must love it. Right. You yeah. And then if you finish them, hopefully you're finishing them too. I think that's a big part of it. Cause like you can start a million of them, but like, it's not really, it doesn't really become a movie unless you finish it. So I think that's sort of another thing that I think about a lot is like, yeah, you know, that thing that you wrote down, you know, 10 years ago that you haven't actually turned to a script yet. Like you could still turn that into a script that still could be something, you know, or that movie that you wrote 40 pages of, but you haven't actually finished like that could you could turn that into a project one day. Like it still has power in, in the half form that it's in. So I don't know. That's another part of it that I think find, find really fascinating, you know, but yeah, I don't know. And I mean, what's going to happen to my movie? This is also because like, I mean, like <laughs> at this movie I'm finishing right now, I'm going to submit it to, I'm submitting it to film festivals. I don't know what the future of the movie is like, but like, what is it going to be? Is it going to just live on some service somewhere and like maybe 10 people will watch it and who knows, or Will it get more attention? Like, will people actually seek out this film? Will I have, a, you know, a few reviews somewhere? Who knows, you know, but I don't know. I guess it's it's undetermined. And I think wherever, it do, whatever it does happen with it, like I should just be, I don't know, I, I need to be happy with it because, you know, being upset about it isn't going to do anything. <laughs> I was thinking, I, I wrote a list of like movies that made me feel something. And it's like, I was just thinking there's this movie called Hotel to Love that no one's heard of that made me, I loved that movie with Saffron mm. Burroughs. And then I was thinking of Drag Me to Hell where there's a scene where it makes me want to mm. throw up and laugh at the same time, which I, it's a peak, <laughs> peak emotion for me. Um, you know, but you just think about these moments in media and it's like, these aren't Oscar movies. These aren't tenpole films. These aren't, these could get forgotten by the majority of the population, you know? So but I do think, you know, people have come to you after seeing your short films and they said, God, that was great. You know, mm -hmm. you did impact someone for however right. like that you can't control it, but you did. So mm. it may get forgotten in the hallways of media, but I think they'll always you'll always have that moment where you actually connected with someone. Um, wow, I am pulling out all of the mm. corn, all of the corn. Today. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's important to remember those like his even like the YouTube comments on some of the shorts I made like those can bring, you know, even if it's a small like, oh, that was great. It's like, oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. You know, like it doesn't have to be like a, you know, a big, you know, review or like lots of words about your film. It could just be like, oh, enjoyed that one. Sweet. Can't wait to see what you do next. It's like, oh, that, you know. Those are the things that are that make all the difference. So yeah, you profoundly impacted them, even though it may not be them crying or laughing their heads <laughs> off or whatever. But you actually reached out and impacted them. That is cool. Yeah. I never really believed that until I'm saying it to you. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we should end this episode now. Uh. <laughs>
about time. Yeah, seriously. So if you want to reach out to us and engage in this philosophical uh, tirade, there are, what, and there are many ways to do that, including writing a YouTube comment, which we love so much. Uh, you could do that on our YouTube page, or you can support the show on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash podcast. Give whatever you can. Thank you in advance. Uh, you can send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave a review on iTunes or any of the places you can leave reviews for podcasts. Finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies Is Hard Podcast. And thanks everyone for listening, for listening. And thanks to Nitsan Magar for Magar Magar for making this episode happen. Um, check out our website at makingmoviesishard.com where you can find links to the things we talked about in this episode. One day, not today, but one day it'll be on the website again. Um, and thanks to editor Cameron, probably me, maybe for doing the editing. I, can't, I don't know who's going to do it yet. Maybe Cameron. I have, to check, I have to check our bank account. Do we have enough money to pay Cameron this week? I don't know. Um, But thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll talk to you guys next week. I'm going to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to say stuff. Uh, This week, we welcome writer, director, and actor Nitsan Majer to, I hope I said that right. Oh, fuck, I'm going to try it one more time just in case. Okay, I really hope I said her last name wrong. Right. Oh, I don't know. I just hope I said her name right. I think you said it right. I think it's good. It's the last name I'm worried about, not the first, because she said pizza, and I can remember that. Yeah, she said Nissan and pizza together. It's like, I'll never forget that. What a weird combo. Pizza's really important.